This is Hear Me Now, the preaching podcast. I'm Dr. John Nixon, Sr. Thanks for joining me. And today we're going to write a sermon based on the parable of Christ in Matthew 20, the workers in the vineyard. And the first thing we have to understand is the literary genre of the parable. It's a specific category of writing. To put it simply, a parable is a story, something familiar, used as a metaphor to reveal a truth of God's kingdom, something unfamiliar. One theologian put it this way, a parable is an extended metaphor with three parts, an ordinary picture of spiritual reality and a point of comparison between the two. That's a parable. Christ used them all the time. An ordinary picture, something from everyday life, a spiritual reality represented by it, and then some point at which the two can be compared and the spiritual meaning revealed. That's how parables function. So, let's get into ours. Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16, the workers in the vineyard. Let's start with listening to the text. Okay, quiet mind, no distractions, still, small voice of the Spirit. Let's listen in. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. I like parables that begin, the kingdom of heaven is like. It gives us right from the start the high stakes of what we're about to read. It reminds us that we're about to deal with eternal things. The kingdom of heaven is like. And not just, not just that, but also the kingdom of heaven is a like part. That reminds us that we're dealing with a metaphor, technically a simile because the word like is there, but things that stand for something else. Everything is not meant to be taken literally in a parable. It's a metaphor. It has a main point. So, so we look for that main point, that, that spiritual meaning that the, that the parable is meant to convey. Understanding it's a metaphor. It's not history. It's symbols. So, for example, we don't formulate doctrine based on parables because they're metaphorical. So we're looking at a story, a story that teaches. It's relatable. It's powerful because it's a story. And the first verse introduces the characters. It says the kingdom of heaven is like, and then it says a landowner. We picture him, a wealthy person. Self-confidence, someone with means. We decide what kind of wealthy person he is as, as the story develops. Other characters are presented, the workers. And then the plot, the plot jumps off. The landowner goes out into the marketplace. He hires workers for his vineyard. He pays them for the day, not a salary. They're not part of his staff. He pays them for the day. They're contract workers. Then it says a denarius. Okay, well, what's a denarius? How much is it? The New Living Translation says the normal daily wage. So a denarius is a day's wage. A day's wage for a day's labor. We're getting the picture now. It's a fair, it's a fair bargain between the landowner and the first person's hire. That's going to be important later on. Let's pay attention. Okay. Verses 3 and 4. 
And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. He goes out again. Not enough workers, I guess. At the third hour, the New Revised Standard Version says that's nine o'clock. By the way, that word o'clock, you know that word? It's a contraction. What o'clock means? It means according to the clock. Okay, so nine according to the clock. He goes out. And he goes out to hire more workers. So if it's the third hour, nine o'clock, that means the workday began at six o'clock. You have workers beginning the day at 6 a.m. Three hours later, some more guys come and begin to work at 9 a.m. right beside them. More hands at work, but also more mouths to feed. This thing is shaping up now. All right, continuing. And notice this. When the landowner hires them, he says to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They were standing idle. But, they were in the marketplace when men get hired, so it suggests that although they were doing nothing, they wanted to do something. They were looking for work. They just hadn't been hired yet. Notice this too. I'm just listening to the text now. Notice this too. This second group of men, the boss does not give them a bargain, a deal. He doesn't say, I'll pay you a denarius. He says, I'll pay you whatever is right. Now you would assume, starting the workday three hours later, that what's right would be less than a day's wage. That's probably what they were thinking too. It's vague. They don't know how much he means, but they either trust him or they just got to have some work, maybe some of both. So they take the deal, they go out into the field and they start working as well. Okay, verse five. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did likewise. Okay, noon and 3 p.m., same deal. He goes out again, gets more workers, another set of guys. One comes in at lunchtime, another comes in three hours after lunch. And likewise suggests they got the same deal. I'll pay you whatever is right. So now we got all these guys out there. The first group knows what they're getting. The rest of them only know they got a promise of getting something. Now it gets interesting, verses 6 and 7. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. Same scenario, only this time now, it's five o'clock. The eleventh hour. That means there's just one more hour left, before quitting time. The workday's almost over. Everybody's thinking about washing up and going home, and here comes another crew. What's even left for them to do? So we have men who've worked 12 hours, 9 hours, 6 hours, 3 hours, and now this last group, 1 hour. Okay, it's interesting now. Table's being set. It's all out there. What's going to happen next? By the way, this story and the way it's laid out is a good example of one of the important aspects of good storytelling, and that is suspense. The story is told in a way to create anticipation. It builds up. We see things coming together. We see questions being raised that aren't really answered yet, and that creates anticipation. You know, what's going to happen next? That's, that's good storytelling. 
Could have been told another way. You could have told the same story in a factual way, like the evening news. Five groups of men were hired by one landowner. They all hired different times a day. Went out there in the field. Okay, you got the information, but there's no drama. Instead, in a story, it's laid out step by step. You progress with it. Your interest is drawn in. And then you see the meaning as it's developed. See, story. I'm, I'm going to do a podcast on preaching as storytelling one of these times. And I'm going to give you the elements of story. To bring them into your preaching. Anyway, so here we go now. Verse 8. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. Hmm. The plot thickens. When paytime comes, the owner reverses the order and has his paymaster pay first those who came last. The one-hour guys at the head of the line, the 12-hour guys at the back of the line, watching everybody get paid before them. Doesn't seem fair, does it? I looked in the margin here at this stage, and it pointed me to Leviticus 19.13, one of the old laws of Moses, that says, do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Well, it's not overnight but it's longer than it needs to be. So there's a suggestion here when you look at Leviticus 19 that something unfair is going on by making these 12-hour guys stand at the back of the line. We thought that already. But look, at here's another in the margin. So Deuteronomy 24, 15. Deuteronomy, by the, by the way, means the second, the repetition of the law, the second law. This is where Moses repeats the law before going up to the mountain to die. Deuteronomy 24, 15. You must pay them their wage each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. If you don't, they might cry out to the Lord against you, and you would be it would be counted against you as sin. Another one of the laws of Moses. Well, now, the paymaster here, he's not paying them. He's paying them before sundown. It's not a violation of that law. But still, still, something seems amiss, something unfair. Okay, we're listening, thinking, reflecting, taking notes. Verses 9 and 10. And when those who came were hired about the eleventh hour, get this now, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed they would receive more, and they likewise received a denarius. Remember now, a denarius is a day's wage. So these guys who worked fewer hours, all of them, including the one-hour guys, all got a full day's pay. The last one, twelve hours' pay, for one hour's work. Not only one hour's work, but the easiest hour of the day. As the day is cooling down, the work's almost finished. They come in one hour and they get 12 hours worth of pay. Remember now, the landowner took them on. He said, I'll pay you whatever's fair. They didn't know what that meant. Whatever's right, he said, I'll pay you. Well, this seems more than fair, doesn't it? This is generous. But what about the 12 hour guys? Verses 11 and 12. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. Hmm, maybe they have a point. What do you think? We've been out here 12 hours, they said. We did all the hard work. We slaved through the hot hours of the day when the sun was blazing. 
Everybody else did less work, especially these five, five o'clock guys. One hour, we get the same pay. It's not fair, they say. How's the landowner going to reply? 13 and 14. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give the last man the same as you. We see his point now. The landowner. He didn't break his promise. He abided by the contract, the verbal contract. They probably shook hands on it. He said, I'll pay you a day's wage for a day's work. And he gave them a day's wage for a day's work. They worked one day. They got one day's pay. Take what is yours, he says, and go your way. We see his point too. He's not saying it's fair. He's saying I can do what I want. In fact, he says that explicitly in verses 15 and 16. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Get this part. Or is your eye evil because I am good? That raises another issue. 16. So the last will be first and the first last for many are called but few chosen. The landowner reverses the focus back onto them. He says, look at yourself. Look in the mirror. Think about this. He said, I did something good. I gave to someone more than they deserved, but I didn't take anything away from you. You got what you deserved. They got more than they deserved. So what's your problem? New Living Translation says, should you be jealous because I am kind to others? That puts it out there, doesn't it? Think about this too. Think about the text. If the 12-hour worker's issue was fairness, if they were angry because the paymaster was unfair, then why did they expect more than they agreed to? Wouldn't that have been unfair too? If it was unfair for the one-hour workers to get more than they deserve, wouldn't it be unfair for the 12-hour workers to get more than they deserve too? They agreed to a day's wage. Now they want more than a day's wage. In other words, they don't really really mind about unfairness. They just want the unfairness to be in their favor, not in somebody else's favor. So the landowner says, is your eye evil because my heart is good? That's really what's going on. See what I'm saying? There's a logic there. Now, let me say something to us as preachers. Remember this now. Jesus is telling Uh, Jesus is the one telling the story, and he begins the story by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. Remember that. If we take the story literally, instead of as a metaphor, we come away with things like, you know, all kind of business practice arguments about fair wages and confidentiality, about punching the clock, instead of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is really what the parable is about. So what does the story reveal about Jesus? That's where salvation lies. That's what we're after as preachers. So what are the principles of the kingdom we can take away from this parable? Parables teach principles. The spiritual meaning is in the underlying principle that reveals the character of Christ. Listen to this. Who he is and what he requires of us. Both those revelations of Christ are are important for us. Who Christ really is, and then in the light of that, what he requires for us. That's what we're always looking for as preachers. And they are here. They're in this parable. 
One of them is spelled out for us in verse 16. First, last, last, first. The kingdom of God reverses the natural order. The first will be last, the last will be first. We see this often in Christ's teachings. In fact, as we broaden the context on this text, we notice in chapter 19, the previous chapter, it ends with the same phrase. Some of the first will be last, some of the last will be first. This is interesting because it comes at the end of the story of the rich young ruler. God reverses the natural order. His kingdom operates on another set of principles. Also, the kingdom of God differentiates between the called and the chosen. We need to get behind that. That's verse 16. So overall now, what do we see in this parable? What principle of the kingdom do we find? Well, let me point out, uh, let me point out at least three. One is this, God keeps his word. He doesn't promise and then not give. I'm looking now at the spiritual lessons about God that are revealed in this parable. He said he would pay. He paid what he said. God keeps his word. That's a lesson we can learn from this parable about the character of God. How about this one? God also gives what we do not deserve. This is an expression of divine grace. The 12-hour workers were right when they said, you have made them equal with us. It's exactly what God's grace does. It makes all of us equal. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Every one of us, no matter how much work we give ourselves credit for, we are all undeserving. It is grace that makes us equal. So the latecomers are not less important than the early comers in the kingdom of God. Because grace is the means of all of us being saved early or late. That's interesting. There's another one. There's one more here that's important, I think. Look at how the 12-hour workers judge what the landowner has done as if they have the right to judge him. He sets them straight. He says, I can do what I please with my own things. You know what that makes me think of? That makes me think of the biblical principle of the divine freedom. This is the third point I'm seeing in the parable. The divine freedom. God is free to do as he pleases. No one can constrain him. No one can judge him. He is the judge. And he judges differently than we do. Our justice is corrupt because it is biased against others and slanted in our favor. That's why the Bible says in Romans 12, 9, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. He's the righteous judge, we're not. So he can judge. But we don't see as he sees, we're not able to, therefore we can't judge. And so the Bible says about the divine freedom, a couple of texts that I, that I could think of here. Uh, I wrote down Psalm 15, 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. How about Psalm 135, 6? The Lord does what pleases him in the heavens, on the earth, in the seas, and in all their depths. God does whatever he pleases. He's completely free. He can even, we've seen him in, in the Old Testament, he even rejects his, old, his own people when they rebel against him and go astray. He raises up armies from the enemies to fight against his own people when we corrupt our ways before him. He's completely free. He says in the parable, I can do what I want with my own things. That's a lesson believers need to learn. Not popular though. Doesn't really agree with the values of our culture. And here's one thing as preachers we need to learn how to do. We need to become comfortable with preaching that is countercultural. 
it's worth exploring this idea of countercultural preaching because the Bible itself is countercultural. As preachers, therefore, we must become comfortable with it. Countercultural messages they are all through the Bible. And not just the ones we, we agree with. The Bible challenges the culture in all of its evil and sin, injustice, prejudice, favoritism, but also the Bible challenges the culture in things we think of as good and progressive. This parable is an example. Stay with me. Our culture teaches that as free people, we have the right to follow our own dis discretion and stand up for ourselves. By this value, the 12-hour workers were doing something admirable, even noble. They're defending their rights. They're standing up for them. Uh, standing up for themselves. In our culture, we would say, let's get some picket signs and join them. The paymaster's unfair. The landowner's unfair. Let's get out here. Let's help them fight for their rights. That's the cultural, cultural value system. The parable counters that. We forget now to look at it spiritually. When we do that, we think we see something other than what's really important. We look at something like this and we use it to defend our stand or our biases or whatever, whatever we want to defend, completely forgetting that the parable is spiritual. Here's the question then. Where in the plan of redemption do you find anything that says we have a right to stand up and question God? Questioning Him, judging Him. Where in the plan of salvation do we have any rights at all? Anywhere in the message of the cross. Whose rights were defended at the cross? Whose rights were taken away? Everything at the cross of Christ was unfair. Christ was treated in a way he didn't deserve. We're treated in a way that we don't deserve. It's right there at the cross. There's nothing about rights. Rights are overturned at the cross. Christ's right to live, our right to die, reversed at the cross of Calvary. Beloved, our sins have forfeited our rights before God. The only thing we deserve deserve is condemnation. We saw that in our John 3.16 sermon, didn't we, a few weeks ago? Everything good that comes our way comes by the grace of God, without which we'd be completely and hopelessly lost. The divine freedom. This could be a sermon all by itself, and perhaps it should be a sermon by itself. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to take it as the main message of the parable today though it certainly is here, clearly. Now, I went back now, and after listening, I started to treat the text. I went to other sources. I went back to verse 1 and looked at some of the ideas that came, that came there. First of all, in verse 1, I noticed one of the sources said um, about the vineyard that grapes weren't one of the most important crops in Israel. Everybody knew then the importance of vineyard work. And it also said that vineyard represents the activity of God's kingdom in this world. We hear Christ using the vineyard metaphor at other times as well. It stands for God's activity in the world, his kingdom in this kingdom. The vineyard symbolizes that. We saw that earlier. That confirms it. I also saw this in one of the, uh, one of the commentary books, a cultural fact. The work day was 12 hours long in first century Palestine and was divided into four three-hour segments. Six to nine was the first segment, nine to twelve, 
12 to 3, and then 4 to 6. That explains why the landowner went out at those specific times. Those, those segments, those break times between hours, that's when we went out looking for more, uh, more laborers. Except the last group. That wasn't 4 o'clock, the beginning of the last segment. It was 5 o'clock. That was not a natural division of the work day. That would have been 4 to 6. Why didn't he go at 4? Why did he wait till 5? It becomes interesting. And when you see that, you think about it. Why 5 o'clock? Well, I can think about it. Think about it. 12-hour day. If some guys haven't been working and they're still out there at 5 o'clock, the last hour workers waiting around, these are the desperate ones. They went all day hoping for some work, for some pay, even if it's not a full day. As the day wears on, they're less and less hopeful they'll get a full day's work, but they want something. They stay right to the last hour, the desperate ones. They're also the leftovers. They're passed over because they're not the strongest workers. They have a reputation. They aren't really skilled. They don't have their own tools. They can't keep up with the other workers. So they keep getting passed over all during the day. That's why the landowner waited till the 11th hour. He went for the ones nobody else wanted. The ones who've been passed over by everybody else. The desperate ones. The leftovers. Do you see the kingdom principle there? The kingdom of God principle? The character of Christ revealed? If you're one of the desperate ones, the Bible's teaching, one of the leftovers, just hang on. God's coming around one last time. He won't leave you behind if you just prayerfully wait on him. That could make a good appeal. I might come back to that at my appeal time. <clears throat> Encouraging those, you know, in the congregation who feel hopeless or, or maybe losing hope. Encouraging them, to, encouraging them to hold on. Wait on God's grace. Hang on. You know, in fact, that might be a good sermon title. The Desperate Ones. <laughs> that might work. Okay, well, let's see. Okay, see this too. Something else as I was going through treating the text. Something else here. The landowner paid them a day's wage for one hour work, one hour's work, because that's what a man needed to feed his family for a day. The landowner wasn't being unfair. He was being gracious. He knew what the workers needed. It was only one day. Tomorrow they'd be out there again looking for another day's work. A denarius just lasted one day. But in the meantime, while they're waiting, their children have to eat. So the landowner gives them a day's wage for an hour's work. Another principle, God gives according to our needs, not according to what we deserve. We come to a self-critical moment now. Now, I didn't see this one. I listened to the text. I got this from the treatment. One of the writers made this observation. The 12-hour workers were not grateful for the work and the wage they received. The landowner didn't have to hire them. He didn't have to pay them a full day's wage. They were day workers. Day workers were the most vulnerable people in the society because they had no land of their own and they weren't connected to anybody who had land. That's why they're out there every day hoping to get hired. So he didn't have to hire them. If he did hire them, he could have offered them a half day's wage. They, could, they would have had to take it. So even though they had a bargain, they weren't grateful for what they had. And their lack of gratitude is what predisposed them to be critical 
of their fellow workers for whom they should have been happy. They should have been happy for the one-hour workers that they got paid too. But because they were ungrateful, they had no compassion for their fellow worker. You see, preacher, there's an application there. Self-interest and ingratitude make us hard-hearted toward others and jealous of their good fortune. There's a text that comes to mind there. Read 1 Corinthians 5.18, where the Bible says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. When we have thankful hearts, when we're grateful, we're compassionate to others. We're not jealous. We're not competitive. Because we know what we got is a gift of God too. God's people should not compete with each other. We should rejoice in one another's good fortune. I can think of another text. Uh, you know that one in First First Corinthians twelve, where it's talking about the body of Christ and the different members of the body. And near the end, there it says that if if uh, if one is sick, the others uh, mourn with him. If one is elevated, the others rejoice with him. You know that's not the exact word. But you know what I mean? It's talking about how we suffer together, we rejoice together as each other. Each other going through things, the rest of us feel the same thing with them because we're one in the body of Christ. We're not competing with each other. I'm not jealous if you succeed. On the uh, quite the opposite, I'm rejoicing with you because of what God did in your life. That's one of the messages of this parable as well. So as I'm looking back now over my thoughts and ruminations over the notes I took from the various sources as I treated the text, I'm deciding what I want to focus on. And I want to focus on the landowner. He's the main character of the story. And he represents the kingdom of God. He's the type of Christ in the story. I'm going to build my sermon around him. I'll stop at picking a sermonic form. And it's easy this time. It's, it's a story. So the most natural form to tell it in is a story form, a narrative. So I'm going to lay this, this sermon out as a story. And my main idea, I'm going to say something like, uh, something like, uh, God gives us what we don't deserve. Or something like, you know, our works, our works don't get us uh, into, into salvation, into glory. You know, something like that. Um, whatever my main idea is, it's going to be focusing on God, the gracious landowner. I'll do it that way. So, I'm going to organize it as a story. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start with the information that I have, uh, as I did my treating of the text, and I'm going to paint a picture of the opening scene. Look what I found now. And this, this, is, this is a tip. Um, the story is set in a marketplace. So, I just Googled first century Palestine marketplace. And look what I got. It says the marketplace in ancient Israel was like a bazaar with lots of shops for buying and selling, people looking to hire laborers and laborers looking to be hired. I can paint that picture as I start my sermon. You know, describe a marketplace, a bazaar type with all the shops and everything. There's one more as I look at it. It says people came to walk around and see all the shops. There were children playing. There were also poor beggars and sick and the lame. There were even rabbis and tax collectors out there, merchants trying to make deals. Uh, it was a very big part of ancient Israel. I can make, I can work with that. You know, I can make a story out of that to kick off my sermon. You know, I'll read, I'll read my verse one and two to get it introduced. 
and then I'll describe the scene of the marketplace. Paint a picture with words. I'm printing a narrative sermon. Paint a picture with my words. The listeners are there, and they, they start to see it in their minds, too. They're drawn into the story as I creatively describe it. I'm going to take my time this week, find good language, picturesque. If I'm not a natural storyteller, I might look and try to get some help on how to put a story together, you know, and we'll work this sermon. So I'm, I'm going to work the sermon. I'm going to paint the scene. I'm going to have the landowner coming up, looking for workers. You know, he's got his carriage. Workers are standing there. They line up. You know, they straighten up when they see him coming, hoping to be the ones picked out to be hired. You know, I can paint that whole thing up. A landowner then makes his first hires. They're hired with a contract. As the story goes on, we're going to see that they're the only ones hired with a contract. They go to work confident, knowing what to expect. Okay. I'm going to carry the story on. Chapter 21, I'm going to read verses 3 to 5. I'm going to describe that scene. Landowner comes back. Some workers are still there who didn't get hired by anybody that first three hours. He comes back. He hires another group. No contract this time, just a promise. But they go to work hopeful. I can take hope. He says he'll pay me what's right. Okay. End of the day, verses 6 to 8. Describe the scene again. Here comes the landowner another time. This time, the marketplace is almost empty. Kids are gone. Shops are closed. Just a few stragglers, stragglers hanging around. And here are these guys whom nobody hired. Landowner takes them on no contract, no specific promise, just, a, just an implication of a promise. Go work in my, my vineyard. They go and work the desert. The first group goes to work confident. The second group hopeful. The third group desperate. They can only hope that they'll get something for their one-hour work. Now, I want to talk here. I'll make an application here, and I'll say desperation is a gift when it's desperation for God. When we're hungry, God feeds us. He notices us when we're desperate, and he comes to our rescue. I can make that little application right there, you know? Okay, now the story is starting to get to what it's in. Right? The last few verses are like a judgment scene. Think about it. So I'll read 8 to 10. The landowner reverses the natural order. So reward is not based on merit. Those who've worked the least get paid first. So we get a principle here. The grace of Christ is unfair. Right? It's unfair. The least are made first. How about verse 12? Grace reveals that we're all on the same footing. You have made them equal with us. If we're living based on merit, we're not being saved because salvation is by grace alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you're saved, not of yourselves, not of works. It's the gift of God, so nobody can boast. So, so salvation's unfair, but it's unfair in our favor, not our disfavor. So we celebrate the unfairness of salvation. It's the failure to, failure to realize our true condition that makes us ungrateful toward God. When we understand His compassion, we're grateful all the time because we're only saved by His grace, by His unfairness. 
Christ gets the short end of unfairness. We get the long end. He's treated how he doesn't deserve to be treated. We're treated the way we don't deserve to be treated. Grace is unfair, but it's unfair in our favor. Praise God. That's the underlying message. When I come to my conclusion, my appeal, I'm going to go back to verses 6 and 7. I'm going to go back to that scene where, where the landowner goes out for that last time at the 11th hour. You know? The stragglers are out there by themselves. The marketplace is almost empty. They're just out there. The desperate ones, I'm going to describe them. And then I'm going to, I'm going to talk about their situation, their lack, their need, their powerlessness. But here comes a landowner at the 11th hour looking for whoever's left to be saved. Whoever's left, he takes them all. Come on, he said, I got work for you to do. He takes them all. Takes them to his, his plot of land. Gives them an hour and then pays them for a full day's wage. God comes back for the desperate ones. And his grace is for them. It's for us, right? The desperate ones. The ones who have no hope, no plea. The ones who have no rights. We can't fight for ourselves because we have We've dismissed, we've eliminated all of our rights by our sins, so we have nothing to fight for ourselves for. But here comes the master anyway. The 11th hour, looking for somebody else to save. Then I'm going to say in my appeal, I'm going to say, beloved, it's the 11th hour right now in your life. But you got another chance. Jesus is coming around looking for somebody else to say, I, I can work with that. Give me a little story at the end, you know, to kind of tie that thing off. Bring people to Christ. Let them look at themselves and see the need and then look at him and see his great bounty. That's what I want to use Matthew 20 to say. So somebody can get saved. You with me? That's what I think is worthwhile. Okay. Okay. Well, I think we have a sermon there. Uh, we can work with it, you know, spend some more time with it. You put it together for this podcast, but you know, when you put it together to preach it, you can spend more time with it, draw out some more beautiful things, spirit leading you, and save some souls. God bless you as you do that. Thanks, listener. That's all for now. Until next time, remember, preachers, to keep humble and be faithful.